Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. WeChat is the latest Chinese app to come under fire from President Donald Trump. What could a ban mean for the 1.2 billion people who use it? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Tom Standage, The Economist's Deputy Editor. Coming up on today's show... Warming shatters Canada's last Arctic ice shelf. The temperatures are about five degrees Celsius higher than the average that they've been since 1981. And a sizzling solution to barbecue pollution. There must be a better way of doing this rather than having sort of fancy extraction systems with multiple filters. But first... TikTok, a Chinese-owned video app, has been in the news a lot lately. Now the spotlight is falling on WeChat, another Chinese app. Contrary to what many people think in the West, WeChat, or Weixin as the Chinese version is known, does far more than just messaging. For a lot of people, WeChat is like their life. They live their life around it, you know. Lian Lui is a San Francisco resident originally from Guangdong province in China. For its Chinese users, both at home and abroad, WeChat is something they rely on every day. Some of them buy food from it, sell food from it. Some people buy houses and sell houses through WeChat. They even buy and sell cell phones through it. And it's not just e-commerce. Lian is a Peace Corps volunteer, and she also uses WeChat to help keep her local community safe in San Francisco. We report suspicious activities and crimes in Chinatown. Altogether, over 400 merchants share information on WeChat with us and local law enforcement. So it's very important that we have that available to keep them safe. Now, all that could be in jeopardy. On August the 6th, Donald Trump signed executive orders seeking to ban American firms from doing business with the parent companies of WeChat and TikTok. It's the latest example of technology firms being caught in the crossfire between America and China. How might an American ban of the so-called super app change life for the global Chinese community? It's where the vast majority of digital activity for Chinese people takes place. Hal Hodson is our Asia technology correspondent. The best way to think about it is sort of Facebook, Amazon, WhatsApp, Instagram and Expedia and more kind of all smushed together. So I've got WeChat on my phone and I've used it to communicate with Chinese people both in China when I've been there and 
when I haven't been there and it just looks like a chat app to me. So where is all this functionality hiding? It is hiding deep within the app. And one of the main differences between Weixin, which is the Chinese version, and WeChat, which is the international version, is the degree of functionality to which you have access. However, I did learn when I was in Beijing, because I've got the international app on my phone and a friend took my phone from me. He didn't change anything about the app. He just went into where he knew the right bits of it were and signed me up for WeChat Pay, I think, sort of erroneously linking me to his bank account. So there is functionality buried in there. It's just much harder to find it on the international versions. And there are some things that the Chinese version does the international version doesn't do. Okay, and how is it that WeChat has come to assume this enormous importance in China's mobile ecosystem? The sort of one, two big combo is messaging and payments. As you mentioned, pretty much everybody you could want to talk to in China is on WeChat. People's grandparents are on WeChat, and that's a lot of the concern with this order that Trump has given that they'll be cut off. The other reason that WeChat has been so successful is that the way that a company can install an app on users' phones in China is very fragmented. Each phone company has its own app store, and it's complicated. So instead of doing that, what companies did was just write what's called these mini programs that run inside WeChat itself. And WeChat has kind of become the mobile operating system in China, equivalent to Apple's iOS or Google's Android. Okay, so if the American ban on WeChat only applies to people in America, because it's all meant to be driven by national security, isn't it? What would the impact be there? So there are only about 3 million people who use WeChat with some degree of regularity in America. And most of these are sort of Chinese immigrants who are using it to stay in touch with people back home. So those people would be cut off from the app. It's not entirely clear. You know, it probably wouldn't be a crime for them to keep using it because that would contradict freedom of speech sort of issues in America. But But what would probably happen is the app would be delisted from the app store that can be accessed in America. And then anybody who wanted to download or update the app would be cut off. But that would hit, first of all, those 3 million Chinese people. But it would also hit you and me because we and other businesses would not be able to continue to download WeChat and use it to communicate sort of inside China. And that's because Apple and Google, being American companies, would have to delist WeChat from everywhere, because otherwise they would be doing business with Tencent, the company that makes it, and that would violate this new ban. That is the idea. It's worth bearing in mind that nothing like this has ever been done before. Trump is using a law called AIPA. It basically says that this is an emergency and that he's using presidential powers to get out of that emergency. The emergency being that WeChat is being used to spy on Americans. But we don't know exactly what that means. From the lawyers that I've spoken to about AIPA, they think that it means not only will Apple have to remove WeChat from its app stores in America, but also the whole world, including China. It's still an American company in China. And the definition of transactions is so broad that really, it's kind of up to Donald Trump what happens here. Okay, so that would be potentially devastating to Apple's business in China, where it obviously sells a lot of iPhones, because an iPhone that can't run WeChat is really not much use, is it? No, it's completely not no use at all in China. And analysts are throwing around numbers like if this sort of worst case scenario does come to pass, uh, that Apple will lose somewhere between 20 and 30% of its global revenues, essentially just because its Chinese sales will disappear overnight. And that is obviously crazy land. Now, Apple makes up a very large chunk of big American stock market indices. So that would hit the stock market. And we know how obsessed Donald Trump is with the stock market. So do we really think this is what he means? Do we have any idea of exactly how far reaching this executive order is meant to be? 
There's a few priors to bear in mind when sort of speculating, wondering what's going to happen here. First of all, we're in unprecedented territory. This kind of hasn't really happened before. Second of all, previously when Trump has used executive orders, there's a really good example. He used an executive order on the security of the ICT, which stands for Information and Communications Technology, supply chains in the United States. That was in May last year. But the actual rules that need to be put in place to sort of carry out that Trump order, they only got floated by the Department of Commerce in January of this year. So it's not like the order itself it creates any rules that anybody has to follow. It just says that Trump is ordering something to happen. The actual rulemaking process happens later. And I personally am quite skeptical that anything will happen before the election, because it's now only a few months away. The other bit of context that you've got to bear in mind is that Trump's running for re-election and bashing on China is a great way to well, maybe it's not a great way. It's a way to make Joe Biden look weak on China and kind of stir up some nationalism to help him in the polls. So how do you think the United States should be going about this if its concern really is national security and not just electioneering? One thing that America could do is get its own data security house in order. We didn't need WeChat and TikTok for masses of American data to be stolen by allegedly Chinese hackers. The Office of Personnel Management, big government HR body essentially, had millions millions and millions of records of government employees stolen. That's got nothing to do with Chinese technology companies and everything to do with lax security standards across both the American government and business. And one of the reasons is because America doesn't have a federal standard for privacy and data security. The EU does, even China does, even India's building one right now. But America doesn't have one. And if you really were serious about securing the data of Americans and locking down these digital networks so that they're safer for everyone to use, you would do that. You wouldn't just attack one Chinese app after another when there's no evidence that anything bad is even happening there. Hal Hodson, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Tom. For more analysis on the technology tensions between America and China, subscribe to The Economist. For the best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is also in the show notes. 
Now, before we go any further, what exactly is an ice shelf? The ice shelves in the Arctic are a little different than the ones in Antarctica. The ones in Antarctica are just extensions of glaciers that go out into the ocean. The ones in Ellesmere Island in the Canadian Arctic are really a collection of ice that over the years has been pushed into the shore and has fused. At one point, Ellesmere Island was surrounded by about 8,600 square kilometer ice shelf, which was just one giant shelf that extended out from the land into the ocean. But since the late 1990s and early 2000s, those shelves have been starting to break up, partly due to climate change, due to warmer temperatures and other issues as well. And so we started to see the breakdown of those. And the Milnai shelf, the one that broke in the last week or two, was in fact the last intact one. Now, I remember in Siberia, some of the temperatures were kind of warmer than it was in Europe at the time, which is kind of bizarre. What kind of temperatures are we actually talking about on the ground in the Canadian Arctic? Unfortunately, COVID-19 meant the researchers couldn't go up in July to do the testing. So we're not sure quite exactly what the temperatures were around Ellesmere Island at the time. What would have happened is a research team go up every year and they measure water temperature and air temperature. And what they're trying to determine is why else ice shelves collapse. Is it the water that warms up? Is it the air that warms up? Is it some sort of combination? Is there something else? Because there have been ice shelf collapses going on around Ellesmere Island since about 2002. There's been about five or six ones. But this particular particular shelf was the last intact one on the island and the last intact one in the Arctic. And on July 30th, 31st, it split so that about 80 square kilometers of the 180 broke off. Okay. So if they weren't there in person, how have they been able to track these changes? Is it just some satellite images or are they using other equipment as well? No, it's satellite images. And then what they do, there's a research team from Carleton University and University of British Columbia in Canada and the University of California in Davis who go up every July for about a week. They check their equipment, take down all the data that was on the equipment that's being saved during the course of the year. And then they leave the equipment there and they come back and analyze the data and see what they found. And this year, of course, the problems surrounding the pandemic prevented them from going. And now the collapse of the ice shelf has meant that they don't know what their future is. They suspect all their equipment is lost, but they won't won't know until next year when they actually go up again to see what exactly is left. But And even before they go up again, they've got to make some tough decisions about how safe they think the ice shelf will be. Where the equipment was, the ice shelf at its thickest was about 80 meters thick, which is a pretty tall building if you were on the ground. And they were working in some areas where the ice was about 10 meters thick. But they don't know now what the stability of the remaining shelf will be and what some of the issues will be from that. So are there any other immediate environmental effects in the area then? Well, the first environmental effect is that the, the 80 square kilometer piece of the ice shelf that broke off, then a couple of days later broke into two smaller ones, of about 55 and about 24 square kilometers. These are like giant icebergs. Only about 10% of them is above the waterline and about 90% is below the waterline, but they're flat. So they're like giant islands. And so these giant islands are now going to start floating around the Arctic Ocean. So the shelf breaking off must have been fairly dramatic. Is there wildlife in the area that's affected by this? There isn't a lot of animals or things like that that would be on the, on the islands. But what there is, is between the shelf and the land, there's something that's called an epi-shelf lake, which is a very rare body of fresh water that comes in off the land. And the lake is trapped. And what the researchers have discovered through radar and also then through ultimately um, melting a hole 10 meters in the ice, they found that this lake drains somehow through the ice shelf into the ocean. But there's actually creatures living in the ice shelf, and it's a range of scallops, some Arctic cod, there are starfish, all of those sorts of things. Are there any other problems caused by the ice shelf breaking away? To some degree, the ice shelves themselves 
block water that in warmer climates might run off glaciers or might run off the land into the oceans. So if the ice shelves all disappear, and I think most scientists think they're going to disappear in the coming years, then that may have an environmental challenge that makes it easier for fresh water to get into the ocean. And at some point, that has an impact on ocean levels as well. For people who are far away from Canada, and they may say, well, you know, this sounds terrible, but what does this have to do with me? Are there consequences for the rest of the world, aside from the fact that this is an indication of climate change in general? Well, Derek Mueller, who's one of the researchers from Carleton University, puts it in the context of saying that the Arctic region is really the globe's air conditioning system. And if the air conditioning system is breaking down and temperature is getting hotter there, that's going to have implications throughout the whole planet. And there implications we may not necessarily know about at the moment until they actually happen. So it's clear there's major change taking place in the Arctic, and that is going to have a cascading effect on other parts of the world and their climates. So recently, we've heard about things like polar vortices and that kind of thing. These are consequences of the the polar regions weather systems being upset and that's the kind of way that this has ripple effects for the rest of the world. That's right and also has an impact on the ecosystems of the Arctic and that in some cases the ones that rely on ice as the ice disappears those ecosystems will disappear and also as the ice disappears and as ice from land of course melts and flows under the ocean that's going to have an impact on ocean levels as well as we've heard about lots in the past too. Chris Waddell thank you very much. Thanks Tom. And finally, after talking about ice, we're going to talk about fire. As restaurants open up after months in lockdown, many are starting up their barbecues. But while the aroma of flamed grilled meat and vegetables may delight diners, the neighbours of some of these restaurants aren't so pleased. Pollution levels near restaurants can be notably higher than average, largely because of the emissions from kitchens. Paul Markilly is our innovation editor. And with the popularity of indoor barbecue increasing, this is a problem that's going to get worse. So I think some people might have heard of, you know, the problem of indoor pollution in the developing world. You've got a lot of people using stoves indoors, and that means you get a lot of particulates, a lot of lung problems. But you're saying this actually extends to restaurants that are grilling meat. Indeed. I mean, this particular problem was in Germany. It was a German environment agency which asked Mohamed Alisa at the Fraunhofer Institute to investigate this. And he and his researchers were really pretty shocked at the amount of pollution coming off a test barbecue, a commercial type restaurant barbecue, which they set up in their lab. Also, other studies around the world have shown that pollution levels in the vicinity of restaurants can be higher. And that's usually from the emissions from kitchens. It's not more cars or more people parked there, but kitchens in particular. Now, Indoor barbecuing, which has become very popular, these grills in restaurants, all sorts of restaurants are using them now, that's going to make that problem worse because all that material that's coming from the barbecue is being vented to the outside air. And what is it in particular about the chemicals that are coming off these indoor barbecues that's so dangerous? Well, you get the typical pollutants, the nitrogen oxides and the carbon monoxides and particulate matter, but you also get some sort of nasty aromatic hydrocarbons, and these things can cause cancer. And they're produced by the incomplete combustion of fats and also oil-based marinades, which can be used obviously not just on meat, but also on vegetables as well. 
Now, there's a group of researchers who think they have the answer to this. So aside from just not grilling things, what do they propose? Well, this was the Fraunhofer group who investigated this, and they were really quite so shocked by what they found. They thought there must be a better way of doing this rather than having sort of fancy extraction systems with multiple filters, which are often difficult to use and sometimes aren't even used at all. So they came up with a better type of grill. Now, this grill, they're not really releasing the uh, details at the moment, but what it does in effect is take the fumes in the emissions coming from the grill and before venting it to the outside, recirculates it by sucking it back through the hot embers in the barbecue into what they call a combustion zone, where these materials are more fully combusted before they're being vented to the outside air. And that, they reckon, can reduce the pollutants by up to 90%. Well, that sounds like good news for the neighbours, but what about the diners? Are they still going to enjoy the same taste? Well, we don't know. This new grill should go on sale hopefully next year. And, well, the proof will be in the tasting, won't it? Sounds like a brilliant idea. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us on fire as ever there. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Tom Standage, and in London, sizzling in the heat, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.